0: Our way of practice is often referred to as the gradual training because we have to face up to the reality of our own individual karma. We've accumulated and attachment through our lack of practice in the past. <coughs> so it's a rare person who can break through all that, uproot their attachments, purify their mind in one go. But this gradual training is at least a clear method that helps us to achieve that uh, peace, purification of mind that we're aiming for. So for most of us, we're working from the outside in And working with the way ignorance, craving and attachment comes up for us in small ways. (coughs) We have no choice. We have to work with the small things first. Whatever they may be, in whatever way they're coming up. So you'll see how monastic training and the emphasis on learning the Vinaya and the Korwat is at the heart of it. And a lot of that is concerned with, you might say, small things. Because in the end nothing is insignificant to the practice. Small kilesas are just as important to deal with as big ones. So our training in the monastic form, the vinaya, the ways of practice, is a very useful, skillful way to deal with that and to actually help us find success quickly in the practice. We might not be able to abandon all our anger and lust in one go but we can maybe see how we can abandon small, smaller manifestations of anger, lust, delusion in our daily practice by using the Vinaya training to bring up mindfulness and wisdom, clear comprehension through our day, through our mo- the moments of our practice. But of course, to benefit from that, we have to learn it, so we do have to use our eyes and our ears, pay attention. We have to have an interest to learn it, which is where Satha Faith comes into the practice. Without faith you can't live in a monastery for very long. It doesn't work. One has to have some sata, some confidence, some commitment, a sense of this is worth doing. It's worth training in this way of practice. It's worth putting in the effort. Others have done it from the time of the Buddha down to today. If others can do it, I can do it. So we have to begin with some satha Sattah is often linked with pasada. Satā-pasātā is like indicating that with satā it brings a brightness, a luminosity to the mind, a radiance to the mind, just, just faith in itself, let alone the radiance of samādhi, the radiance of pāṇya or even sila. But just bringing up faith that there is a way out of suffering, there is a way to practice however difficult it may appear or whatever it requires, at least there is such a way. This is that quality that people often have when they first encounter the Buddhist teachings. You can imagine in the time of India, in the old days, somebody actually meeting the Buddha, their mind would have brightened straight away perhaps even this day and age, just hearing the Dhamma, meeting teachers, listening to Dhamma, reading Dhamma, the mind can brighten straight away, and that's brightening, becoming more radiant out of its the habits of the karmic habits based on craving attachment. So we need faith and that leads on to wiriya. You know, once you have some brightness that gives you the, some kind of interest, enthusiasm to apply yourself to the practice. And in practical terms, wiriya means bringing up mindfulness. So mindfulness of the vinaya, mindfulness of the callwak, mindfulness of meditation object to quieten the mind, mindfulness of Dhamma, being mindful of anicca, dukkha, anatta, asupa, and so on. So with sata, this basic brightness of mind that comes, or it's not yet completely established, Maybe it's not yet the satar of an area pugala. Not yet unshakable. But at least it's there, and we may know how to bring it up again by rev- reviewing the dhamma, listening to the dhamma, and so on. We bring up this faith, and this brings some of brings forth effort, energy, weariness. Without weariness, without effort. And it's very difficult to practice and to proceed in the practice, even if it's a gradual training. So we're learning, and often learning over and over again through experience in daily life, learning how to look after our requisites. It's a basic learning of of a monk, a bhikkhu mindfulness of the bowl what it is what it does for us it's it's our means of obtaining food so we can survive so we learn to be mindful of our bowl and look after it keep it carefully keep it clean and aired mindful of our robes mindful that there again there are symbol of our renunciation. they're what keep us warm they keep us protected so we need to clean them, air them wash them, patch them when they get holes in and so on and look after them so they don't get damaged we reflect on the medicines we use, we reflect on the kutis the accommodation we have and so on just becoming mindful of using the requisites you might say is a very good starting point for our training so we have many rules about this and because we're using them every day then as a backdrop for bringing up mindfulness every day we become mindful of using the requisites and if you're mindful of using these very simple basic requisites of life then you can't help but notice things you become observant so that leads on to wisdom you reflect on your robe and you see well every day you wear it gradually it becomes dirty from the body grease and sweat dirties the robes so if you don't wash them they become smelly That's just teaching you the basic truth about a human body, that everything it comes into contact with becomes soiled. It takes effort to look after robes. It takes effort to even obtain them in the first place, in the proper way as a bhikkhu. But once you've got them, they need to be looked after because the body soils them. Same with our arms' food and our bowls, our cooties, we need to clean, and so on. It's just pointing out to the mind every day through this simple practice of mindfulness and the use of requisites is that that's the nature of the world we live in. We have to find the requisites of life and then we have to look after them. And there's dukkha. Associated with that. And there's some unpleasantness in terms of, say, the human body and everything it comes into contact with gradually becomes blemished and dirty. So this is a gradual training in itself, just becoming mindful of the requisites, how we obtain them, how we use them how we eat, how we use the robe, and so on. And that builds up some kind of wisdom, understanding over time. So we have faith and we have wirya, bringing up mindfulness. Over time the mind becomes calmer and calmer through the practice, more still, more quiet. And then wisdom arises, arises simply just out of reflecting on the use of the requisites. And by extension that applies to everything we're involved with. Living in the monastery, we obviously, all the different sana we use, the, the buildings, the utensils, the tools and so on. So We build up a picture of what it's like living in the world as a human being. Just our basic daily needs and living in this world already is teaching us great Dhamma. If we keep putting effort into establishing mindfulness and reflecting on the truth. You see, see in the course of one day you know how many times does the mind drift off away from the truth in the course of eating a meal as you're putting your robes on wearing your robes cleaning your robes as you go back to your kuti and the mind drifts off into mental proliferations and moods all the time. So just the practice of being mindful of the requisites is already a, an anchor for the mind to anchor the mind in present moment awareness and in reflecting on the Truth. Then, even more so, using meditation objects like the breath to keep returning to the breath as a way to focus the mind in the present moment, just to calm it down. Even if it's very difficult to achieve any state of calm, just the worthwhile effort, putting effort into establishing mindfulness, we're leading to sati, even if you can only sit for five minutes relatively still, that's already, you might say, a a beginning of a state of samadhi. So weary leads to sati, leads to samadhi. And from that samadhi you can learn something. <coughs> you can learn why is your mind more peaceful. You reflect back. and This is wisdom. You learn coming to sit meditation, putting that effort in all the steps that led up to that. You're learning what are the causes and the conditions for peace to arise in the mind, even if it's only a brief moment of peace. Or if you're sitting and the mind starts to spin off into different moods, likes and dislikes, well, you're learning from that. Even if it's not peaceful, you're learning, well, what is the mind like when it's not peaceful? why is it not peaceful where where is the lack of peace coming from and this is all wisdom this is building up an understanding of your own mind and what leads to peace and what takes peace away and putting in that wholesome effort to keep practicing keep restraining the, the mental proliferation, the moods, you start to learn to see, well, moods are just moods. Thoughts are just thoughts. They're just all sankhara, which run a course, run they have a certain lifespan, and then they fade out. And with mindfulness watching and wisdom reflecting, you can see that. So you're learning about you know, the impermanent nature of this world this own your own body and mind in a meditation even when it's not peaceful you're seeing how the mind's moods they fade out they run their course and then they, the mind goes back to stillness even if only for a few milliseconds and then off into the next thing with that wholesome effort just to keep Establishing mindfulness breaks up a sense of continuity. Yeah, if you keep doing that regularly in your practice, your mind will necessarily gain some understanding about how to let go of moods and just see sankharas as sankharas. Now, returning to stillness, you know, we, can, we talk about it as different, describe it in different ways. You can say it's to emptiness, it's to cessation, or just the mind where mindfulness is present. If it's for a few moments longer than usual, then the brightness of the mind increases at that point where it stays with stillness, where mindfulness is established and you've let go of some mood and some thought pattern. You know, the brightness that you originally had from satara, from the faith leading on to effort into the practice to establish mindfulness, that brightens even more through the presence of mindfulness and wisdom, just letting go of sankharas. So you might find you have those moments in your meditation where the mind just brightens, where it's dropped, the mental proliferation. Seeing through it, seeing as in each dukkha anatta, just seeing as empty of anything really substantial. It's just not very important or significant to your mind. Sometimes just by being very patient and waiting and watching, other times you have to use some wisdom to bring up a reflection to get to that point where your mind drops its obsession with some particular proliferation. or well, whatever way it happens, the mind goes to a sense of brightness, peace, which is even brighter than before, more peaceful than before. if you can sustain that with mindfulness at that moment and keep it going by turning to the object of your meditation and the breath, then you can build on that. That little moments of brightness can become deeper and more sustained. And you have some kind of standard which you can measure your own state of mind by. You know, how, much, how bright is it? How quickly does it take to settle down, to calm down, to let go of whatever it's obsessed with? So then you'll see some days easy, can settle down quickly, other days very difficult. So that leads on to more reflection on why, why today is it very easy to settle down, why is it not easy to settle down? Sometimes it's very obvious if you you look back at what precedes your meditation. Well, it might be very obvious, maybe just getting caught up in something too much. You know, talking to somebody about some worldly issue, talking to lay people, differences of opinion with other monastics. Uh, some news from outside or something. It may be obvious causes. Other causes are not so obvious and you have to look harder. Or what's different today? Why? What's affecting my mind? Maybe it's to do with diet or how much we've slept or can be just our attitude towards meditation. Maybe we're letting the mind drift into unwholesome states. But by repeated practice, you keep learning just as much from the unpeaceful states of mind as you do from the peaceful ones. And you're noticing even the peaceful ones fade, so they become. you can still see their temporary states of mind, temporary sankhara. But all the time, you're learning what causes and conditions for peace of mind are. You see there's something that particularly bothers you, something that stirs your greed, a particular requisite of food, or maybe thoughts about opposite sex. Maybe sometimes the easiest solution is just avoid that thing altogether. So you cut it out of your diet or you don't talk to ladies or whatever. Then you can say, well, that's a very easy way to achieve a peaceful mind. But then other things you can't avoid. You say certain foods you can't avoid. You have to eat food. You have to meet people sometimes or see people. Or you still have memories coming up. So then you also have to have techniques. How can I reflect? How can I deal with this particular issue that disturbs the mind? That's where we have to use wisdom. Obviously, wisdom functions better when the mind is calm, so that's why we also have to keep establishing mindfulness. But we establish mindfulness in order to support wisdom so that we can start contemplating, looking more deeply at what leads to what. So Ajahn Chah used to say if you're not sure where to contemplate how to lead wisdom or improve it, deepen it well then contemplate the body you've got every aspect of the body there's many aspects we can look at you know, the 32 parts or contemplate the breath itself or contemplate the senses your eyes, ears, nose, tongue and the body as a sense. Contemplate the senses and their objects. Just start noticing, particularly an Ichadukha Anatta or a Supa of the, the physical form and the different aspects of the physical form. This is where wisdom starts to develop. So, if your mind is particularly stirred, it's stirred by thoughts about something, a kind of food or a kind of drink or a person, you would just bring up wisdom at that point. Be aware first of all that the mind is not peaceful, be clear and honest with yourself, it's not peaceful and then use some wisdom to see if you can change that. And this whole body is another sankara, just as our own moods and emotions are sankaras. This whole body is a sankara. It's a conditioned phenomena. It's a formation. So this body, start looking at it as in that way. How is it a conditioned fo- formation? Start pulling it apart according to its conditions. They're taking the different body parts apart imagine putting them in a pile next to you, the hair in one pile, the teeth and nails in another, the skin, each organ take it out and put it on the ground next to you, let the blood drain away into a kind of a some container, the snot, the urine and so on, each body part just take it apart Mm -hmm. take it down further and just contemplate, each body part goes back to its elements, earth element, water element, heat and air. And then where is the person in that? The person that you're attaching to, thinking about, yourself, others, You love love some people, you hate others. The thing that you love, the thing that you hate is just these body parts that you've piled up that are just breaking down into the four elements. Obviously at first you have to just think about it, think in that way, but you're guiding your thought through wisdom and mindfulness, visualizing, reflecting, contemplating. the sign that it's working is always the sense of calm that it brings you to, brings the mind to a sense of stillness as it drops, its usual obsession. Love and hate obsess the mind. They're very strong emotions that lead to endless proliferation, thinking, satisfaction, dissatisfaction, and back again, back and forth, back and forth. Endless cycle of suffering. But something like contemplating this body as 32 parts or the four elements, something that's impermanent goes towards aging, sickness, death, then back to the elements. That brings the mind to a sense of stillness or emptiness where it just really can't proliferate anymore. Even when it jumps back, you jump. It jumps back into its cycle of proliferation again. Back to loving and hating. You've got some information there in the back of your mind you can use to confront that again. "Mm, Why am I proliferating again? I've been through this. I've contemplated this thing. This body of mine is just impermanent, not self. Just the four elements other people's bodies just four elements so you keep challenging your own thought proliferations using wisdom not giving into them not being willing to always believe your own moods and thoughts actually bringing up the Dhamma over and over again to teach the mind if you want a title for this it's you know, Wisdom Developing Samadhi where you keep bringing up wise reflection to interrupt the mental flow of your moods trying to use truth to quieten the mind settle it down and whenever it does settle down then that sense of brightness then that returns and gets even deeper in the sense of detachment distancing this passion from your own body and from its own emotions and moods that it's normally clinging on to then that takes place you start to have that sense of a little bit more distant a little bit more at ease within yourself and this can be just as much <clears throat> as courageous as a practice as just sort of sitting for long periods or walking for long periods, uh, various ascetic practices and so on, fasting and going without sleep and so on. They can be very useful as well, but actually being willing to confront your own moods with mindfulness, with wisdom, bringing up the effort to do that. Little by little kind of not letting things go in the sense, not letting your mind just indulge in its own habits and following every preference, every view, every opinion, but actually to keep looking at them with the eyes of Dhamma and to keep bringing the mind to its own quietness inside, returning to what they call the, the pure mind or the original mind. And letting things run their course and then finish, and not proliferate again about that issue because you've understood it. We have only one way to go, as it were. We have to keep turning back to look at our own minds and seeing where the prolifer- proliferation is coming from. You know, how does it how does it keep jumping out of the centre of the mind? We keep thinking about endless different issues over and over and over again where can we get some peace from that to be able to do that we have to keep establishing mindfulness so that's where you know the practice of the the training in the routine and the core the ways of practice the monastic discipline help with that In these sort of small moments where you think, what am I doing now? I'm eating, I'm setting up my bowl, I'm putting on my robe, I'm washing my robe, I'm going back to my kuti, how do I set my kuti up? How do I spend my time through the day during a retreat time? We have lots of time. This is the beginning of that practice of mindfulness which leads into that real focus on body and mind in terms of dhamma, as I was just describing. If you want to take a big tree down, maybe you can't take it down from the base first. You have to work through it from the small twigs and branches first, cutting them away till you get to the the base or the trunk. So it's just important to be mindful in small things as you eat, as you drink, as you talk to your fellow monastics just as important as how you're sitting meditation in a deep period of deep meditation maybe you know each aspect of the practice leads on to the other Is a fairly obvious reflection but you know, sometimes they say you can see how or where somebody's practice is at by looking at their kuti how their kuti is how well maintained how clean do they sweep around the kuti do they clean up inside do they leave their clothes all over the place is it f- full of all possessions all over the place and so on or is the kuti you know well maintained neat and tidy how we do things how we live tends to reflect our state of mind it's not absolute it's not for us to judge each other in that way but it's for us to judge ourselves using our own intelligence our own wisdom to say well how do I do things how do I live how do I speak how do I spend my time as a way to to gauge where where the mind is and how much mindfulness we have in the present moment doing chores when we do a chore, just observe what is your attitude as you're doing that chore. If you have the attitude, I just have to get this done as quickly as possible so I can get back to my meditation. That may be true in one sense, but then in another sense, maybe you're actually laying the causes for further kilesa, further attachment to arise by giving into that mood of just wanting to get it done quickly, which may be fired up by some craving or some aversion to the chore. Maybe it leads you to do a sloppy chore, you don't really do it very well, or you don't complete it, you just sort of do it in a half-hearted way. Then if you take that attitude back to your kuti or to the meditation hall and sit meditation or walk, well that will go with you. And that will tend to be the attitude you have to your own mind. As I said, it's not absolute, it's not for us to judge each other in this way, this is just a reflection that you can use to watch yourself, to get to learn yourself. If we don't look after the world around us, look after the way we talk to other people, the way we use the requisites, the monastery around us and so on, then generally that's a sign that we're not looking after our own minds very much we're not in touch with them, we're not a sensitive and aware about them. So there'll probably be a lot of mental proliferation going on that's unaddressed, a lot of craving and attachment that's unaddressed. Ajahn Chah used to say, you can tell where somebody's practices by the way they leave a toilet. Do they clean the toilet after they've used it, come out having left it in a good stake for the next person if you just sort of rush out not even thinking twice about whether you've cleaned it or not, then it's unlikely you have much mindfulness when it comes to meditation your mind will still be in a rush and you will miss all your own defilements arising and your own moods and so on it's the same thing so Everything matters. You're bringing mindfulness to bear on every aspect of the life. From what we think, our attitudes, through to what we speak, what we, what we do, our actions. They all count, they're all part of it. That's why the Vinaya training is so refined and so detailed. In meditation practice it's about you know, establishing mindfulness in all postures and all times. That's our aim. Even if we lose mindfulness, at least we know I've lost my mindfulness or I did lose my mindfulness. You know with honesty, then you can establish it again. If there's no sense of training, being one who is in training, then very difficult to really keep much of a tab on your own mind to know where it is and what's going on. But sometimes we kind of react. We don't like being brought back to the present moment, especially if you're having a nice daydream or fantasy, sometimes it's pleasant. So anything that brings us out of that can be annoying or frustrating and yet it's still the right thing for us. So sometimes we have to be very honest and think it through and very strong and firm with ourselves. Similarly with aversion, sometimes when we have a lot of aversion, we tend to think it's correct. I should have aversion, I'm upset because this happened, that happened. Other people are not behaving properly or whatever. But again, to have enough mindfulness to see, really the problem is the mood itself. We've lost our mindfulness and we're indulging in that mood. So we have to learn how to keep bringing the mind out of its daydreams, out of the, the dream world of you know, conventional reality, our likes and dislikes and the names and labels we give to everything, that kind of dream world that we take for reality, we have to keep bringing the mind back out of that, keep waking up back to the mind of mindfulness and wisdom and that's quite difficult and frustrating And sometimes other people do it for us, particularly to teachers or senior monks. Sometimes they say, do this, do that. Come here, go there. It can be a great help for bringing up mindfulness. But then we have to see that point. Otherwise we tend to just react again with frustration or despair, disappointment, whatever. Even other members of the community, even junior ones, sometimes they can bring us back to the present moment. They're actually helping us, pointing things out to us. Still the mind doesn't want to get it. Still the mind doesn't like it, so we go to a mood either pleasure or pain, happiness or sadness. And is isn't to say that we should all be teaching each other, but just in the course of our daily life we have interaction with other people. So sometimes they're actually bringing us Dhamma in one way or another. Even lay people can do this for us sometimes. Sometimes lay people can remember a Vinaya training rule that we've forgotten. They say, Venerable, shouldn't you be doing this? Or was this offered or not offered? Or, sometimes they actually help us so we should try to see that there's an opportunity for learning Dhamma in many situations or even simple strange little things like say you're you're Kuti and you're caught in just fantasizing and a branch drops on the roof or a bird squawks outside or something that brings you back to the present moment maybe they're actually helping you to cut through some other sankhara, some other mental proliferation. Other times we just do it through our own training. So when you go back to your kuti, say you're in a mood, but you first of all you bow down to your Buddha statue or to a picture of a teacher. Out of good training you bow down. Maybe that's enough to break through the proliferation. Set the mind up for Meditation or before you go to bed you bow before you get lay down to sleep you bow it brings up maybe wholesome states gratitude reflecting on the buddha dhamma sangha whatever works through repeated practice you know these these often very simple little techniques bring up mindfulness and bring the mind back to the present moment One who has trained and, app- and practices and appreciates that, and then they become like Venerable Sariputta that day when the seven year old novice just reminded him that his robe wasn't straight as he was going out on Park. You, know, you could think anyone with who was a senior monk, an adult, would probably have a bit of ego come up and conceit and think, oh, who is this little kid to tell me? A Venerable Sariputta was a, one who appreciated the Dhamma of the moment, so he lifted his hands in Anjali and said, oh, thank you for reminding me. And I wasn't aware of that. And really all the Dhamma that we're gaining is something to be grateful about, something to be respectful of. We can respect the Dhamma, we can respect the Dhamma in others, just others around us keeping the precepts, living this wholesome life, whatever their characters, whatever their personalities. They still have the Dhamma of the, the Vinaya and the meditation they're doing. Already that's something to be we can appreciate. Or the Dhamma of the laity who bring us the supports that we need. The Dhamma of the place, you can even say the Dhamma of something like a tree, there's a tree that gives you shade and helps to protect you from the elements and provides a peaceful backdrop for your practice, you can have gratitude to the Dhamma of a tree. But when we become mindful of this training and we're using it, and this is what Happens to the mind, it opens up and becomes more sensitive to these things. So we have a night of practice ahead. Time to uh, continue on our mindfulness practice. Put effort into the sitting and walking with patience, with diligence. And this is what will free us from Mara. We like When we talk, we like to talk about Mara as a, a deity or some being or something. But really, Sankara Mara is probably more to the point, just our own mental proliferations and moods that keep spinning out of the mind uncontrolled through a lack of mindfulness. So If we keep focusing in on the mind itself with mindfulness then you, you, you keep one step ahead of Mara and you can keep your self out of Mara's trap and stay free, the liberated heart, free from the kalesas, free from the attachments. And this is our opportunity to do that tonight, so I encourage you all to keep up with the practice.